strong bond of separation. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right. <laughs> I was looking over. Is it, is it another race to the microphone? Oh, I can win this one if you don't try. That's, that's helpful. <laughs> okay, well, we're down to our last talk of the weekend. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness to us in uh, feeding us from your word. Please teach us again, we pray. Please help us to have the energy to be able to listen and understand. And we recognize that we need the work of your Holy Spirit to understand your word and to live by it. So please do that for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a great day so far, but probably a little bit of a tiring one. It's the last session of the conference, so you're probably feeling a little short of energy do you need a bit of motivation to kind of get the energy back to make the most of our last hour together? I have one thing to lift your flagging energy levels. There it is. Pain is temporary. Pride is forever. Do you feel lifted? Hmm. Pain is temporary. Pride is forever. This guy didn't become like that by quitting in the third session, did he? he, he he's... You know, pain is forever. If, if you want to, you know, go get the long-term benefits of enormous muscles like that, you need to go through the short-term pain of injecting yourself with steroids or something like that. <laughs> but maybe you're not so motivated by an image of what you could become. Maybe motivation for you is more about what you don't want to become. Is it more like this? Oh... Well, <laughs> pain is temporary, suck is forever. Maybe that's the motivation for you. It's not the getting the big muscles, it's just losing the, yeah, may, maybe that's more where you're at. The pain is temporary, something is forever, goes off in all kinds of directions. It's used in all kinds of way. Um, one very popular direction plays on your fears. We'll see if this is going to work this time guys over to you um pain is temporary quitting lasts forever does anyone recognize this guy in the brackets there lance armstrong uh, we thought he was the best cyclist in the world we've worked out he just had the best chemist in the world um maybe perhaps the line should be pain is temporary but a lifetime doping ban is forever maybe that would be uh, more appropriate and then there are the winners amongst us who perhaps prefer this version. Gentlemen, I'll just leave it to you. I think I don't think I'm working on this one. So maybe this is you. Pain is temporary. Victory is forever. Maybe that's what gets you motivated. Or perhaps you're more of a weekend warrior and it's this. Pain is temporary. Searchable race results last forever. Yeah. Somewhere out there on the internet, there's a race sheet that says, I once came 15th. Yeah, it's not, yes, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. 
Interestingly, when you search uh, the internet for these, these kind of things about pain is temporary, the, the endings about pride and quitting are the popular versions. I was a bit surprised that this next ending wasn't more popular. Pain is temporary, glory lasts forever. So I just thought that, you know, for muscle-bound hulks, they, 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 they'd misunderstand glory badly enough to want to go with this, but no, it doesn't seem like this one's very popular. But it, this gets to the heart of what it's all about, isn't it? About all of these pictures that I've put up, they're really all about you, aren't they? About you conquering, about you putting in the hard work, about you obtaining your eternal glory or eternal future. It's what your muscles can do to leave a permanent mark on the world. In this last talk today, we're thinking about suffering and glory. And you need to make sure that I don't turn this last talk into one big motivational poster. It would be easy to do it. There is one vital thing that we need to learn about suffering and glory that will protect us from ever wearing shirts with those kinds of motivational memes on them. We're going to think about what the last chapter of 1 Peter has to teach us about suffering and glory, but first let me set it in context for you by reading the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That context is a stark reminder that painful trials, insults and suffering are a normal part of the normal Christian life. Peter says, don't be surprised by them. So, happy campers, who wants to be a leader in all of that suffering? We're at point one, eldership. And have a look at verse one of chapter five. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Peter reminds us here that he is intimately connected to Jesus, both in the suffering and the glory of Jesus. He was an eyewitness of the sufferings. And he says he will share in the glory that will soon be revealed. And so here again, we've got our two themes that we keep seeing in the letter, don't we? Suffering in exile, but elect for glory. That was the reality of Jesus' life, and that is the reality of life for anyone who follows Jesus, elect exiles. Peter is particularly addressing people he calls elders in this section of the letter. So do you think he is talking to you? Do you think he's talking to you? 
Some churches have leadership positions that are actually called elders and you might hold one of those positions. You'd probably say, yeah, he's probably talking to me. Other churches call their church leadership positions by different names. But maybe it's the same kind of thing that's being spoken about. But I wonder whether eldership is even broader than just having a position that has a name. When does a younger become an elder? How old do you need to be to be an elder? This is the kind of question you'd, yeah, you'd enjoy chatting about it with the person next to you, wouldn't you? Let's put it on the screen, gentlemen. Can we put that up? How old do you need to be to be an elder? There's one to get us going this afternoon. 30 seconds. How old do you need to be to be an elder? Go for it. Okay, let's have a think about this together. Um, the obvious answer is sometimes the best, isn't it? Often the best, the obvious answer. To be an elder is generally just about being older than the people you lead. And it, the ministry that I serve is a really good example of this. Our ministry contains about a thousand students and young graduates and only a handful of them are over 30. We don't actually have any official positions that are called elder. But does that mean there is no eldership in the campus Bible study ministry? I think there is more to eldership than just having a position with a title. So you might go to a church where most of the elders are in their 50s, 60s and 70s. And you might not be an elder in that company. But when you come to the university, and you are in second or third year, then you might be an elder to the first years. If you are asked to serve as a Bible study leader in our ministry, it's because we can see that you are functioning like an elder for the younger students around you. But perhaps even as a third year university student, you might not be the oldest member in your Bible study group. And again, it tells us something really important about eldership. Can you still function as the elder when there is someone older than you? Well, eldership in the Bible and in Christian ministry isn't just about age, is it? It's much more about Christian maturity. It often happens that Christian maturity grows as age grows, but again, it's not always exactly in sync, is it? And so I hope that nearly everyone in this room might consider the possibility that in some of the contexts of their week, some of the contexts of their ministry, some of the relationships they are in, they might be performing the function of the elder in the relationship. And if that's the case, then Peter is speaking to you. What's Peter got to say? Well, let's have a look, verses 2 and 3. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. To the elders among you, shepherd the flock. 
Peter will go on to speak about the godliness that's required to fulfill this eldership role, this leadership. But first and foremost, we need to see that there is a command there. Shepherd the flock. It's a command. Pastor the flock. I guess in a perfect world, elders wouldn't need to be commanded to do this. They would be just serving. They would step up and serve by leading others. But it's interesting here that Peter has to exhort the elders to this pastoral role of caring for the flock. There's often a reluctance to lead, isn't there? There's often a reluctance to lead. Maybe that reluctance is compounded even further in a context of suffering and painful trials. Maybe who wants to be a leader when there's so much suffering and, and pain involved? Do you feel reluctance to lead others? To shepherd the flock? It's a big responsibility, isn't it? Maybe you'd prefer to avoid that responsibility. But as I look at the rural and regional churches around New South Wales that I know, and particularly in drought times where we've been for a few years, I'm seeing a lot of churches and ministries that can't afford full-time ministers. There is a very important ministry to be done in those churches even when they can't afford a full-time minister. Those churches need elders who will step up and pastor the flock. And I'm imagining that Tasmania has similar situations and there are similar needs for those who love God's word those who can lead others to be the elders who will pastor the flock. God's flock across the world is actually crying out for more shepherds, more good shepherds. Now, there are, of course, reasons why you shouldn't take on the responsibility of eldership. Peter outlines them in these verses. Did you see them? You shouldn't pastor the flock just out of compulsion. Or if you're just in it for shameful, greedy gain, don't do it. Or if you're domineering, it's about service, not domineering. There are good reasons why you perhaps might not step up and pastor the flock, but I suspect they're probably not your reasons. I hope they're not. Do you have better reasons for not stepping up and pastoring God's flock? God's flock across the world is crying out for good shepherds. There are flocks everywhere needing pastors. If you are a suitable elder, step up, trust God and shepherd his flock. And if you want to know whether shepherding is going to be tough and hard and painful and full of suffering, have a look at verse 4. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You're all thinking I got the wrong verse. There's nothing about suffering in there. It's all about glory. But what do you know about glory in the Bible? It always follows suffering. Just as for Jesus, suffering then glory, so as for his people, suffering then glory. Suffering. Sheep bite. Shepherds bite. And you might even accidentally bite yourself occasionally, I guess, as well. Suffering. Yep. Now is the time of sharing in Jesus' sufferings and the future will be the time of sharing in his glory. But now is the time to share in the suffering and the hardship of exile. The time for comfort and glory is still to come. In verse 4, I don't know whether you noticed it, but we've got another imperishable thing. 
We love our imperishable things in 1 Peter. This one's the fading, sorry, the unfading, get that right, Carl, the unfading crown of glory. Jesus, the chief shepherd, does not just share his shepherd's crook with you. He shares the crown of his kingship with you in his glory. Um, and we see it. He also, he also promises this in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Up on the screen, guys, can we have uh, 2 Timothy 2? The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we, will, we, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is a promise that we see a few times in the Bible. Jesus isn't just taking you on board for the hard times. Jesus will share his reign with his people. That's the glory that we're looking forward to. Now, it's interesting that the crown of glory in 1 Peter seems to be linked to faithful shepherds. But in 1 Timothy, it's all who die with Jesus will live with Jesus. And so the question in my head is, do all Christians get the crown or is it just the faithful shepherds who get the crown? Now, because it's the afternoon, I need to give you lots of questions to keep you awake this afternoon. So here's the next one up on the screen. There it is. Do all Christians get the crown of glory or only those who step up and shepherd? 30 seconds with the person next to you. Good chance to wake up and, and chat about something important. Go for it. Okay, I'm sure you've already got it, haven't you? It's, a, it's, an, it's, it's the wrong thing to ask, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you, you, you've got it. It's great. We're thinking about it the wrong way. See, should there be a difference between every Christian and those who step up and pastor? I think I'm hoping to convince you this afternoon that there should be a lot less difference, that every Christian can have an eldership role in the lives of others they can serve. And so it's, we're not talking about one or the other. I think we're, we're talking about both. Um, so shepherding being much more of a, an essential part of the Christian life. Who can you shepherd? Who, can it be a Sunday school class that you can shepherd? Can it be just one other person that you can read the Bible with and help grow as a Christian? Can it be a Bible study group? Can it be a, a few guys who sit around and have coffee and talk about the Bible? Like, who is it that you can shepherd? No one can be a younger all their life. So when you are an elder, please love people and shepherd them. And when you're a younger, please submit appropriately to your elders who have stepped up to shepherd you. That's what verse 5 speaks about, doesn't it? Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. So are you an elder or a younger or could you be both in different contexts of your life? Perhaps the key thing is to ask in every relationship in which you find yourself, do I serve the other person here by being an elder and shepherding lovingly? Or do I serve the other person here by submitting to their shepherding and submitting to their leadership? Wouldn't that be a good thing to ask in every relationship in which you find yourself? Am I the younger here or the elder? 
And how does that mean I serve the other in this relationship? If you ask that question and you're the elder, leadership stops being an ego thing or a power trip or a chance to push people around. Leadership becomes, how do I serve you by leading you? And if you're the younger, your loving service is to appreciate their leadership submissively, benefiting from it. This attitude from either side of the relationship changes the dynamic on both sides. On both sides of the equation, we're seeing this beautiful relational humility in youngers and elders serving each other for their growth as Christians. And so that brings us to point two, humility. And we better keep reading in verse five. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Whichever side of the relationship you find yourself in, humility is the key to the whole relationship working. One of our pastors who works with me, um, particularly with overseas students who come and uh, find Jesus in Australia or who sometimes come as already being followers of Jesus, he always struggles as these Christians need to go back home because they, they come to church with us on campus. We run five churches at the university in lecture theatres on the weekend in four different languages. And they come to these churches and they really enjoy being part of a university church. But when they're going home, back to their home country after they finish studying, can you imagine how hard it is to go from university church that you've really loved back to the church, perhaps where your parents go or perhaps... A, when you've never been, where they do things differently, where, where it's not the same as a university situation. And so this pastor, my friend Josh, he gives them this advice up on the screen. He says, this is how you do it. That's his advice. Now, it stands for something. It's not quite as rude as it looks. Can we go to the next slide? Sit humbly under the underpaid pastor, is what he says. Sit hum humbly under the underpaid pastor, because they're often going back to countries where the pastors really don't get paid very much at all. Sit humbly under the underpaid pastor is his advice. And I think Josh has it right. And I suspect that might be good advice for all of us. We all need to learn to sit humbly under good leadership. And we need to learn to sit humbly when we are giving the leadership. Humility is beautiful in the Christian life. Now, at the end of the verse, at the end of verse 5, did you notice that it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? And here again, we've got one of those interesting asymmetrical kind of comparisons. You see, in my head, what Peter should have said is that God opposes the proud but embraces the humble or accepts the humble, whatever the opposite of opposes is, but gives grace to the humble. Interesting, isn't it? He's, he kind of has changed up the contrast a little bit. A little bit like our five words before. It's not quite symmetrical. Here's another chance for you to have a chat with the person next to you. Can we go for the screen, please? There it is. Why do you think the contrast to opposing the proud is giving grace to the humble? 30 seconds. Enjoy.
right, let's have a think about it together. God is against the proud. That's pretty clear. And it's tempting. We want to say that God is for the humble. Mm, but it doesn't quite say that. See, I wonder whether that would make the humble somehow seem deserving of God's acceptance. Even the humble are in need of God's grace, God's generosity. Even the humble. It's the only way anyone will ever be acceptable to God is by his grace, out of his generosity alone. Our gracious God gives grace to the humble who depend upon him. A similar idea is expressed in verse 6. Verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. True humility recognises our absolute dependence upon God. True humility is about trusting God to raise you up. Do you know what I find hardest about humility? I want to raise myself up. I don't want to wait for God to do it. I want to get out those motivational posters with the big muscles and go, I can do this. But true humility is about waiting for God's timing for vindication. Trusting that the right time will come where God will lift you up, where God will exalt his people. The right time probably won't be in the work tea room when your colleague humiliates you by saying something really nasty about Christians. The right time probably won't be around the dining table when that family member says something to belittle your Christian faith. But the right time will come. It will come when Jesus returns or takes you home and God will exalt you then. But waiting... Waiting humbly can be, well, pretty humbling, can't it? And maybe this is one of the reasons why you might be hesitant to spend more time pastoring God's flock. Spending your time pastoring God's flock is not very glorious in world's eyes. In fact, it will cost you some serious social status. How would you introduce yourself at parties? Let me tell you how it works for Jenny and me. Some of you may have worked out from our incident before that Jenny is a doctor. Uh, just two days a week. And so we go to parties and we'll be talking to a stranger, a newcomer, and, and you know, they'll say, what do you do? And Jenny, very humbly, she, she would never be proud about it, but she'll say, oh, oh, I, I'm a doctor. I just work two days a week as a GP. And they'll say, oh, that's wonderful. And then I'll say, what about you, Carl? What do you do? And I go, uh, well... I'm a minister of the gospel. And there's usually a pause like that. Yeah. Oh, that, I'm sure that's nice too, is the response. You know, I'm, I'm sure that's nice too. Oh, is that the time? I've got to go. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of a difference in social cred, isn't there? Do you think it's bad for me or good for me that I go to parties and people think my job is not very impressive? And do you think it's bad for you or good for you that you go to parties and people think your job is impressive? Mm. Does the thought of being seen as an unimpressive pastor fill you with status anxiety? Have a look at verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 
Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares about you. God can bear your status anxiety and he can bear all of your other anxieties as well. Now we're not talking about clinical anxiety here. If your struggle is clinical anxiety, then it's a really good idea to have a really good GP and to listen to what they tell you. But this passage is talking about all of the day-to-day -day anxieties of living as an exile in a world that hates Jesus. For all of those anxieties, remember that God cares for you. And that is the only status that truly matters. Cast your anxieties upon him. He can bear them with you. Humble yourself before him. He will exalt you at the right time. Can you see that humility is the wise, godly way to live? Whether you are an elder who shepherds or a younger who submits to other shepherds, the wise way to live in this world is humility. And so that brings us to the resistance. We're at point three, the resistance. Verses 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. These verses speak about the devil prowling around seeking someone to devour. We need to think about what it means that the devil might devour someone. What does that mean? And I think the place to start thinking about it is to give you another question. It's the afternoon. I know you need them. So here's the question on the screen. How do these verses connect Satan and suffering? Enjoy that one. 30 seconds. Go for it. Well done, everyone. I, I always know when to come back in when the murmuring stops, but I love it when it doesn't stop and I have to break in. So well done. I, I, you've done well today. I had to break in on you on that one. I love it when I have to drag you back because uh, you're so interested in thinking about the Bible. It's a beautiful thing. Well, let's think about it. The context for this resistance is the sufferings that you are experiencing like your Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world. That's the context of this resistance. And the way you resist the devil is by being firm in your faith. So it seems that the way that the devil devours is by somehow eroding faith. How might the context of suffering be conducive to the devil eroding, eroding faith? I imagine in suffering, Satan wants to cause people to doubt God's goodness. 
Perhaps the devil uses suffering to make us feel as though God has abandoned us. God isn't there or God doesn't care. Now that strategy of the devil will only work if people haven't read their Bibles. Because the Bible tells us very clearly that God's people will share in the sufferings of the Christ. We'll, we follow Jesus, we will share in his suffering and share in his glory. Now it seems to me that um, even if you've been well taught from the Bible about suffering, when it hits, it can still rock you badly, can't it? But imagine if you haven't been well taught from the Bible. What could you expect to, come to happen when, when suffering hits? Imagine perhaps that you've only ever attended a church where suffering is not preached about because they prefer to preach only about blessing and success and prosperity. A friend of mine is a pastor of university students in Zimbabwe. Very poor country. It's been through a lot in the last few years. Listen to what my friend Tawanda says about some of the Christian teaching in Zimbabwe. It's a fairly long quote, so I'll tell you when he finishes speaking. One of the chief lies being taught about Christian prosperity is that God's blessing in the lives of his children is evidenced by abundant riches, money, houses, cars, expensive clothes, and good health. The preachers go on to teach that being poor is a sign of lack of faith, of a curse from God. The sad thing about this message is that it's so far from the truth and it undermines the true gospel about Jesus Christ, which we can rejoice in whether we have plenty or little. In Zimbabwe, for example, our economy is currently very bad to the extent that we don't have our own currency. Industry is down and most of the commodities we get are imports, which are very expensive. Many people live below the poverty line and the above teaching comes as a potential solution. On the other hand, the preachers themselves grow very big churches and they become very rich because of the huge congregations. Recently, these preachers have started doing miracles and prophesying which draws huge crowds who think the miracles are a sign that the preachers are being used by God. Some of the bizarre miracles in the news recently include miracle money, whereby congregation members just find money appearing in their wallets and bank accounts. Miracle weight loss whereby someone is called to the pulpit, the preacher produces a scale and prays for the person so they lose weight instantly. Still going in the quote, these preachers are growing huge followings and they are giving people false hope. I have seen many students failing to cope when they realize that all the preachers had promised them is not happening. They see relatives dying of diseases. They struggle to get enough for fees, let alone food to eat. Many are not able to face challenges when they come since they are never taught the truth about suffering for Christ and suffering well as Christians. End of quote. Prosperity preaching is booming around the world. My Singaporean friends tell me it's the basis for the biggest church in Singapore. My Indonesian friends tell me it's rife in Indonesia. My African friends like Tawanda almost weep at the way it has swept across Africa. It's in big churches in America and it's in big churches in Australia. What happens when people have been sitting under prosperity teaching suddenly face serious suffering? What is going to happen? How can people possibly keep trusting Jesus in times of suffering when they've been taught that Jesus isn't going to give them suffering, he's just going to give them blessing? 
And this prosperity doctrine is being preached around the world while some of our most faithful brothers and sisters in Christ across the world are being seriously persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They are resisting the devil by trusting Jesus even as their lives are threatened, as their families are taken away and their homes are confiscated. Can you see how much the flock needs faithful elders who will pastor the flock by teaching the word faithfully? It is only as people stand in the truth about Jesus that they can stand, trusting in that truth. Our world is crying out for faithful pastors who will just teach the Bible faithfully. Will you pray that God will raise up these faithful pastors for the world out of Tasmania, out of northern Tasmania? And, well, could you be the answer to your own prayers? I'd love it if you'd keep practicing in your particular local ministries, practicing being an elder who is willing to pastor the flock by teaching the truth, whether it's just to your Sunday school flock, little children, whether it's to one other person that you can meet and read the Bible with, a younger that you can encourage and shepherd, or whether it's perhaps to the whole church if, if the church can't afford to pay someone full time. How can you step up and be an elder to some of the youngers that need to hear the Bible around you? We resist the devil by being firm in our faith through the sufferings of exile. And again, we are reminded that for Jesus and for his people, suffering is followed by glory. Verses 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Again, we need to put away the motivational posters. Pain is temporary and glory is forever. That is true. But that glory is not obtained through your muscle. Do you notice that verse said it's God who calls his people into that glory in Christ. It is God who will put an end to the suffering of his people. It is God who will himself restore you, make you strong, firm and steadfast. It is God who will right the wrongs. It is God who will lift you up. It is God who will exalt you in the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. So to him be the dominion forever and ever. That is the truth, so we need to stand firm in it. And that takes us to point four, very brief point four, stand firm in it. Peter finishes the letter with a few friendly salutations and one very important exhortation. Verses 12 to 14. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That little exhortation at the end of verse 12 is an appropriate conclusion to the whole letter, isn't it? And it's, and it's an appropriate conclusion to our day together, isn't it? 
Stand fast in it. The grace of God. It means stand firm in the grace of God. Remember, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Stand firm in God's grace. The prowling devil is resisted by being firm in your faith. Stand firm in God's grace. God has promised very clearly that glory is coming, but now is the time to share in Christ's sufferings. So stand firm in God's grace. Stand firm in it. It would be so easy to fall back into the motivational posters at this point, wouldn't it? To start flexing our own muscles and steeling ourselves to stand firm. But we know that we don't even stand firm by our own strength. Rather than flexing our muscles and getting out the motivational posters, how about we do something much better? And that's ask God to help us stand firm. Let's finish by praying. Our Father God, thank you so much for teaching us about your grace that you've shown to us in the magnificent death of the Lord Jesus in our place. Thank you for being gracious to us when we did not deserve it. Our Father, we pray that you will help us to stand firm in that grace, to stand firm in your generosity. We recognise that we are exiles in this world, but you have graciously, uh, you have elected us for salvation. And so, our Father, we pray that through the sufferings and the trials and the hardships of life as an exile in this world, Please help us to stand firm in your grace, holding dearly to the truth of your word. And we pray, Lord, that at the right time you might lift us up. Please help us to be humble, to trust you to right the wrongs. Now, Father, we, we are so thankful that the day is coming when you will right all wrongs. Please help us to stand firm, humbly trusting you until that time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.